Okay, I think we're on. Okay, great. Good morning, Alex. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on the uh, podcast here with us. My pleasure. Thank you, David. So I thought it would be great to start with just uh, maybe you giving a little background about yourself, and and uh, we'll we'll kind of just uh, lead lead it off with that and see where it goes. Great. Um, so yeah, Alex Kane, and I'm the director of the Cape Atelier, which is a education nonprofit in the Cape Valley, and we basically have um, a, a learning center for homeschool kids in our community and a little bit further out from our community for people to come to do uh, really a nature-based academic program. So what we try to do is tie in some sort of uh, meaningful nature experience with each academic content that we're teaching so that there's uh, some meaningful connected experience that goes with what they're learning. And we started this up a few years ago. Uh, I taught in a number of different schools in in Davis, I taught and in the Bay Area at a few different schools for about 10 years and kind of became um, in love with teaching and with kids, but felt like the restraints of the schools and the school system itself was not that was not good for the kids. You know, I felt like it was holding them back from learning that they could do. And so we wanted to start something that would help them capitalize on their own curiosity and not kind of tie them down by the restraints of um, standardized testing and the restraints of all of the bureaucracy that goes with a lot of schools. So we wanted something just a little bit different than that to have a little bit more of that openness to follow their curiosity. So we run um, you know, a blend of constructivist pedagogy with some just general progressive education practices. And then we're, we take some influences from like Montessori and Reggio Emilia and Waldorf um, but we don't really go by any one particular teaching style. Um, and then I have two kids that are in the program too. My son Oliver, who's just turned eight, and my daughter Ayla, who's five. And we run, um, we start at five, and then we, right now our oldest kid's 12, and we're planning to take the kids up through high school for whoever wants to come with us. And so far it's going great. You know, we started with six kids. And um, we just had another one join on. Right now we're up to 19 altogether um, in a few years. And there's kids coming from further away now. So we have like a lot of local organic farming families where we are. And then there's some, some communities that are a bit further out, like half an hour, 45 minutes. And some of the families make the commute out for what we're doing, which is, which is pretty exciting. That's pretty awesome. So, so tell me about like a little bit more details about the transition from what you were doing as a teacher in the public public school or yeah public, public and and an independent school in oakland yeah okay and then and then was it like you and your wife like sitting down at the table at night like hashing it out and having conversations and then ultimate like tell me about that jumping point a little yeah bit. i mean i think part of it came from the birth of my son which is where i think every parent starts to really think about well what do we want for my family you know and it it made me re-look at the education system and the way that I was able to teach because I knew that at some point he was going to be going into probably whatever school I was teaching in. Yeah. And, and so I started, you know, you start to look at like how all the kids are interacting with that system and realizing, you know, just looking around and realizing that there's these kids that some of them are just absolutely flourishing, no doubt in uh, whatever school they're going to be in because some of those kids can just take advantage of any opportunity that's there. 
And then there's a whole bunch of them that I felt like were um, not being served as well as they could be. So say we're doing some sort of um, like long-term lesson or long-term unit that is restrained by like timing or by other classes that the kids have to go to or by um, restrictions that the school has on where we could go and what we can do. And all of those things limiting the sorts of experiences that I can provide for the kids. And then um, one of the big pieces too that actually really started hitting me was the, the homogenous age groupings and how we've split kids into these really kind of arbitrary, although um, easy for a school yeah. separations. Like you've got all your fourth graders together and all your fifth graders together and all your sixth graders together. And when I was teaching fourth grade, it, it totally makes sense. You know, I can teach like, I've got my fourth grade standards to go for and it's yeah. it's easier to do that. And at the same time, it's way worse for the kids because um, they're missing out on so many opportunities to learn from each other of kids of different ability levels. I mean, not to say there aren't, of course, ability levels in a fourth grade class. There are, it's, it's pretty big sometimes. Um, but when you've got like a five up to 10 year old span, there's so many opportunities for peer teaching there that I feel like are missing. And, you know, that has both been the biggest challenge we've faced with the Cape HLA is having a mixed age class and absolutely the biggest opportunity. You know, I often talk to parents about how I would do these projects with my fourth graders or my third graders, and there were always things that those kids could access. Like we were building a slack line as one project in my fourth grade class. And it was supposed to be like this mobile slack line, not one that you just hook up to trees, but one that like we were doing it for a silent auction thing. And there was all this amazing math we were doing with like they had to build these boxes that could withstand the pressure. And so they had to come up with like some sort of support beam to go across and and then have the slack line like go across the top so that people could walk across it. Yeah. There were all these things the fourth graders could do, but at the same time, there were all these things that were like in a way too easy for them. And they were like, eh, I don't really need to do that. I don't want to do that. And so I did it. And then there were all these things that were like too hard about the project because of their ability level as fourth graders. So then I did that part too. And when we've got it as like a mixed age class, sometimes we get these projects where all of those easy, hard, medium levels, you've got an aged kid, an ability level who can access that. So then they're all really working together on whatever the project is, like actually helping each other and doing each part. And those feel like those moments where you're like, this is what life is really like. Like, when do you go through life and have a moment where you're only interacting with people your same age? You know, <laughs> like it doesn't happen. You know, right. we're like, wherever, whatever job we have, there's people who are older and younger. And yeah. being able to learn to work with those people is is vital. So this it's just just like a life skill too. You know. Oh yeah, and not to mention this, the connectability has no number. Like one of my best friends, he's an 80, 84 year old guy who lives in Dripping Springs in Texas, out just outside of Austin. And he's like my best friend. Yeah. And we talk on the phone once a week and we just have these amazing conversations because we connect. Yeah. And it, like there's, there's no, like it just, the number makes very little sense. Uh, another thing that I was thinking, maybe you could speak to this and you kind of alluded to it, but like if, if a five-year-old is in a classroom, like they, there's no doubt, like they might be ready for eighth grade, ninth grade, you know, 10th grade material. Right. Uh, and, and we're just, we're just, you know, or, or a, a five-year-old might not be ready for five-year-old material, but the, the number just right. seems to cap people. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, teachers like go to uh, extraordinary lengths to try to meet all those levels in their in their classrooms with different with, you know, when you've got your homogenous age group, and you still got these different levels. There are like so many differentiation strategies to use to try to meet all of those different levels. But at the same time, like it's still so incredibly hard. Yeah. You know, every teacher still only has like a certain number of hours per day and so many extra responsibilities that the teachers who still put in just like so many extra hours and are incredible, it's, there's still only so far you can go, you know, yeah. like, and so we absolutely have the opportunity now with what we're doing to not hold those kids back in the same way, or at least provide them with, you know, like if you've got a kid who's five and like you said, is at a much higher level, they can work with that older kid for a while. And they're learning how to connect with that older kid who's at a different level. And they're also able to like grow together, you know, and teach each other in different ways. And it's beautiful. You know, we see, you know, I feel like a lot of the sort of power dynamics that can exist in schools are between different grades. When you've got like out on the playground stuff and you've got the like older kids who are treating the younger kids in a certain way and the younger kids were maybe feeling intimidated by the older kids and not sure how to interact with them. And we've got our five-year-olds who are like totally standing up to the 10-year-olds and like having the conversation like, you know, I don't really appreciate how you're talking to me right now or whatever it is, you know, and it's like that ability to, to like that empowerment to speak up for yourself for any age is, is beautiful. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. So, so you and your wife, you, you, you just decided like, let's move to, let's find a, 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 a bit of land. Let's take off and let's do this. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we had, um, we had, it was when we were living in Oakland and we had this idea of wanting to somehow go out into nature, more of a natural experience for our own family and to build up some sort of little school of some kind. But yeah. we didn't know what that was going to look like. And it took years of trying to figure out, like we had all these just ridiculous plans of like, we're going to live somewhere for like two days a week and commute back to Oakland where my other job is for three days a week. And, or we would do like a week on a week off. And I mean, basically my school was like, it's not going to happen. Like you can't do that. <laughs> and we were, and I mean, thank goodness it didn't happen. Cause that, that would have been so hard for us to, I don't even think it would have worked. Yeah, and yeah. so we got in a way we got, um, this opportunity arose where there was a place where we could start doing it, which was in the Cape Bay Valley of, California, which is like an hour and a hour and 15 minutes from Sacramento. And it's this beautiful little 15 mile long valley with a ton of small organic farms. And the closest public school from the tip of the valley, the closest public school is like an hour bus ride. It takes like a half hour to drive, but the bus is like an hour. And there were all these um, young families who have just started organic farming, all these kids who were getting older. There's like this big old bubble of kids. And there wasn't a school option there that they were really interested in. And we started to become friends with some of them just from hanging out. There's a creek here, so we'd be swimming at the creek and talking about it. And our vision of what we wanted for, for this alternative schooling idea really kind of grew together of like, we wanted something that the kids would not only learn their academic subjects, but they would learn how to appreciate and be able to live in nature better. And they would be able to, um, you know, on the social side, be able to live in a way like we're talking about with mixed age people and develop like strong social ties and social skills. 
and also have a, a, a pretty big impact in the community itself because we didn't want the kids to just kind of exist as this little pocket in the, the in the community but have a pretty ongoing you know contributive role there and so like i said we started with six kids because um that was how many kids there were that were like five and six years old at the time yeah. so that was our that was our population and it was it was really nice to start with a small number you know because we then we got to practice stuff and work stuff out we were like we were on a deck like literally a little deck next to a tree was our like classroom for probably eight months <laughs> and it was like throw a tarp up when it's raining most of the time we were not on the deck anyway that's just where we kept our materials yeah and we would just be out like along the creek or in the like, riparian section nearby or yeah. every friday we were going on study trips you know somewhere out in either in the community or out on a trail which we still do and then um the next year we there was a kind of a big influx because a lot of the kids were older siblings and so we built our first little schoolhouse which is like this tiny little one-room schoolhouse it feels so like um you know antiquated in a way but it's idyllic you know i love it and then we have we have plans to build another one soon because we have some more kids starting up too so well and the, still, and the kids yeah. themselves the students built this right like yes this. totally they've helped with like all of it they helped build our compost toilet they helped with you know all the different pieces like we have pictures of my son and daughter when they're like tiny with like the hammers and the saws and they're like cutting everything up and everything love it. it's beautiful and then, um, you know, the fact that we've like been able to do it for, this is our third year and I've now been able to teach these kids. I mean, this is where like some of the Montessori bits and the Waldorf pieces come in where you get to teach a kid over and over, not just for a single year. Yeah. It's really, uh, like, it, that took me a long time as a teacher just to transition mm -hmm. from thinking about my time with a kid as nine months and or sometimes even like a few months until the next break like until winter break happens you know and now just the like the time frame i remember it really hitting me a lot at the end of the first year because you know june was coming along and it was like this is when we start wrapping stuff up this is when we start getting the kids ready to go on to the next year and the next year was going to still be with me and so it was like i we don't have to stop anything you know the, the the learning the learning can just be continuous and we can still grow together and so now i've been teaching some kids for three years which any teacher who's done that knows is like you know those kids just so incredibly well the whole like first month of school to get to know the kids is gone and the whole like last bit of wrapping it up is gone we just have so much more time in a way yeah that i can speak to more later too i, I mean that's that's been amazing well, it arguably, and, and this is coming from my perspective as a, as a teacher in the public education system, like it arguably takes a whole year to get to, to develop even just the, the beginning of a relationship. Uh, and then and then, you know, some kids, some, some, some individuals you 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 come to have a relationship with that lasts, you know, longer than the year. But yeah. A lot of them you don't. And, you know, they, they move on. And that's just how it goes. Yeah. Isn't it crazy when you get to like. April and May and you're like oh I finally get you and we can start like making <laughs> lessons perfectly for you and see you later you know <laughs> gotta yeah. send you off and you try to like tell the next teacher and the teachers try to tell you and you're like well yeah I mean that doesn't mean much until you actually get to know the kid really well yeah it's got to be a personal connection and uh 
better or worse, like someone else telling me about someone is, is not the right. way I'm going to learn uh, how to play somebody. I mean, that's like education in a nutshell right there. Someone else telling you something isn't <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So will you tell uh, us or touch on like, so you said you started with like six uh, young uh, guys and girls. Um, yeah. What was their, I mean, did you get a sense for how they acclimated to it? Uh, were they, was it easy for them to transition into this? Because it's clearly different than what they could have been doing in a, in a right. different school setting. Um, were they, were they ready to jump in uh, or was it kind of yeah. a thing for them? Well, it, I mean, it was all they knew at the time, you know? So in some ways it, it was really easy because school for them, they, which they call what we're doing is their school. Um, school for them has, has been this, you know? And so it's one, some of the things that were like tricky at the start, we're getting used to I mean, we have some structures obviously that we, we have to put into place about how to interact with another kid and like cooperation like we spend so much time working on how to work together with other people and for kids and that can be that can be new for any kid regardless of what their past experience has been and sure. so and and that is still something that i constantly see with new kids that we have coming in is like that's where a lot of our focus goes with a lot of the new kids is how to interact and work well with another kid. Because like we had, we had kids the other day who were, um, they were arguing about, we were doing like this big long lesson unit on the universe and like the different stages that the universe has gone through leading up from like before the big bang up to basically now as our, as, as earth is in the moment, which was this, it kind of comes from a Montessori thing and it, it came from our new teacher who's a Montessori trained teacher and she's amazing. And it sets a really beautiful frame for how to look at anything in our world now to kind of be able to have that context of where everything has come from, right? And so there's one piece of that that's like a stage of the Earth's development where there, where it's like completely covered in lava and volcanoes. You know, this is like way before life. This is sure. before, when the Earth was just starting to form and and so the kids were trying to basically artistically portray that part of the story. And there are these two like really gifted artists who were working together on a piece and just like button heads of like, no, the volcano should be only this big and no, the lava should come out this strong and no, it should only be this strong. And like, it took like, an, you know, they were, they were doing it for like an hour. Yeah. And they weren't, and you know, we got to the point of like me trying to like coach them through that. And I love how much time and, energy they were putting towards this artistic piece that's beautiful yeah and at the same time you know like the reason they weren't progressing is because they weren't communicating well and so we ended up stopping and i was like you know i don't care how you draw the volcano the volcano the, the picture of the volcano actually doesn't matter at this point what matters is that you two learn how to talk together because that's a skill that's going to affect you for the rest of your life no one's going to ever critique you on how beautiful your volcano is, you know, <laughs> but yeah. well, you communicate. that's going to say. That's beautiful. I mean, that's, that's, uh, gotta be a kind of the heart at the heart of what you guys are doing <clears throat> is learning, learning how to communicate with the environment, learning how to communicate with each other. Right. Uh, yeah. That's just, that's just wonderful. Yeah. It's all about connection, you know, connection with like knowing yourself, 
knowing the other person, people around you, and then connecting with the environment. Like that is a part we haven't talked about much yet so far, and I'm sure we will, but that is like, that's a key piece of what we do. Just making sure that they're connected in some way with the environment around them. Who, who ended up, I mean, what did they end up doing with the volcano? How did it end up coming out? So they, we kind of debriefed on what mistakes each of them made in their communication and what they could do differently. You know, and it basically came about that, like, they both agreed that they could argue less, which is a nice thing to say, but without a plan for that, <laughs> it doesn't get you very far. Um, but one kid came up with, you know, finding some sort of compromise, you know, mm. find some way to blend the two ideas together. And so the next day when they came back together, you know, I basically prefaced it of like, okay, remember the, the goal here is collaboration. Yeah. You know, give it your best shot and you know 20 minutes later they come back with this beautiful picture that of this volcano and they were like we didn't argue at all <laughs> they're like so proud of themselves <laughs> it's like they got to the like what really mattered about it like like they realized maybe that they each had a different perspective which yeah. is totally okay right. and they they were like happy with the process versus some some result of like right, the picture, right? yeah exactly that's really cool little microcosm for like any collaborative situation that's really awesome so uh, alex would you would you mind touching on why you think it might be valuable i know you've, you've kind of talked about it a little bit but why why it might be so valuable for anyone to really think about what they're doing uh in terms of education uh or or for parents who are bringing young ones into the world like why it might be a serious investigation uh to look at what is offered versus like Something that, that what, what you guys are doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that most people go into their perspective on education thinking about what they experienced as a kid, right? So you think about, like, what did I do as a child? And sometimes that's loaded with, like, a lot of positives that they you flourished and you loved what your education was like. Sometimes there's a lot of negatives. And I think even when there are negatives, it's often the frame that we see what the education options are for our children and what the expectation is. So even, you know, a lot of us come with our own history about it and then we see what could be for our kids completely centered around like what our own experiences and there's constantly a back and forth, you know, like I've talked to hundreds of parents of students over the years who are, who are constantly saying like, Oh, well, that's not how I did it. Yeah. And even if it's something that they, see is a better opportunity like you know there's been constant changes in how kids do math algorithms like how long division happens or how long you know multiplication happens and there's always this resistance even if on a conversation there's like oh this is actually better and it actually does work better with how my brain works there's still like uh oh, that's not how i did it and so they go home and they still try to teach the kid at home how they did it and so I feel like in some ways we have to be able to break out of, okay, what was our experience? Sure, that was our experience. But how can I reflect on what would actually be best for my kid, which is obviously really hard to do. Yeah. Um, and then there's almost like this overabundance of options. Like there's all the different ways that kids go about learning, all the different ways that, teach, that schools work and teachers do it. And there's zillion books on different ways to do it. And it's, it's totally overwhelming, like which one is the best way, you know? Um, what I often try to just communicate to parents is like, you, there's time, you know, there's plenty of time to figure it out. You know, sometimes we get contacted by 
families of like two-year-olds who were like, I need to figure this out and I need to have the plan ready for what my kid's going to do. And it's like, just try stuff, you know, practice different things. You know, there's plenty of books out there, like I said, and you, you read some, you observe, you can go like check out any teacher. Like most teachers are fine with people coming to observe them. And there's obviously a zillion videos out there online of like different ways to do it. And then it's just all an experimentation because you don't know how your kid is going to interact with a particular style. Right. You know, your kid's got like his or her way of interacting with content and a, and a teacher. And sometimes you don't know until you've tried like 50 things of like, oh, totally. My kid like needs it visual. And if it's, if it's visually there, they can see an example, like boom, they're, they're golden, you know? And like I could say it to them over and over and over, blew it in the face trying to explain it and it's not going to connect. Or you've got a kid who like you just verbalize it once and like their ears are the way to, to get into there, you know? Like there's so many different ways. And so, um, I mean, I guess for that's what I try to ask any parent to do is just try to explore and try things. Because you got like if there's if it doesn't work when the kid's five, maybe it'll work when they're six, seven, eight, nine. You know, like I still do it as a teacher too, and for my own kids, and like, oh my gosh, there's so much I want them to learn by the time they leave. You know, there's so much I want them to learn by the time they're eighteen and go off on them by their own or however old. And and it's like so much to try to think that it's all these things we have to like pack it in right now, and that's a it's it's a long period of time you know, long period of time for them to grow and develop. And one kid who like learns how to read when they're five and their parents are like overjoyed and everyone's happy because reading is like the pinnacle of what kids are supposed to be able to do when they're little kids. And then you've got kids who don't learn until they're like eight or nine and that's not the end of the world. You know? Right. In a traditional public school system, it's a lot harder because you've got, um, the pace is different, right? You've got like kids who are not learning to read until they're eight or nine and they get they get marked on the lower side and they yeah. get on this track of it's harder to learn. And then, oh my gosh, there's all these like diagnoses and things that go along with that. And like, it's such a bummer because that's just not how some kids work. And a kid who learns to read when they're 10 is going to be fine. You know, like they're going to grow well, up. And they, gonna... they will be fine, but they might not be fine with all these stigma stigmatization. Yeah. Like, the stigmas that have developed because they're in this system where you're supposed to do it, you know, a certain way by a certain time, which is, like you said, just so unfortunate. Right. Right. They will be fine if if they're given the space to learn it at that at their pace. Yeah, like right? if it's okay, right? Yeah. Um, so so yeah, and, and and I was just thinking when you were talking about the the time aspect, like I think we forget sometimes that as teachers, we think that we are the reason like a, a, uh, an individual learns something. Um, and and no doubt we have a, a huge role in facilitating. And if we're, if we're great facilitators, we can really uh, empower an individual and also like create like a great learning space. But like, but like, like people learn on their own and they learn yeah. what they want to learn and it's up to them. And it's like, I, I always think about the like learning to talk and like learning language, like, or, or just learning everything in the first couple of years. Like there's no, there's no teachers. Yet, yet these these individuals are at their highest learning state, and they're picking up everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes you think a little bit. It's slight, slightly off topic, but not exactly. Uh, I taught with a fourth grade teacher named Bob for a while, 
And fourth grade is like, you know, kids are just naturally developmentally, a lot of them are developing more of a sense of independence and more of a sense of like, I can do this. Um, I don't need as much help. I'm going to try it more on my own. And throughout the year, they would just start to develop that. And at the end of the year, the parents would come to Bob and be like, thank you so much for teaching my kid how to be more independent. And he'd be like, that was not me. You know, that's it's like, that was their own process. That's what they all do. And he would get that every year. He was always teaching fourth graders, you know, so he would see it all the time. And the parents were always like, yeah, it's just amazing. And I think, I mean, it speaks to it a little bit, but not exactly. It's just like the developmental stage of a kid is going to happen. And you can't force it before yeah. it's going to be there. And you should absolutely rejoice it. And sure. you shouldn't you shouldn't feel terrible if it takes a little longer, you know? Yeah, and we probably also shouldn't take credit for it. <laughs> like, 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 for example, like uh, we ran into some people uh, who work at the, we call it play school, but uh, our son Brixton goes to a, the Davis... Uh, parent nursery school and he was like um anyway the so parent volunteers uh are there and i'm i'm at the high school teaching so i'm you know during the day my wife goes uh, a couple times a week and anyway there was a a story that this woman we ran into in the parking lot was telling us about brixton and he was learning how to climb up the slide like instead of sliding down he was learning to climb up the slide and he uh at first like like you know was kind of like trying to figure it out. He was experimenting and then he figured it out. It clicked. And then he was like all about it. And he just like, yeah. and, and this woman was talking about how cool it was that he like first, like learned how to climb up the, the slide, like using the rails with his hands. And then he just was climbing up without using his hands at all. He was like scaling it with his legs. And then she, she said it was really cool. He like flipped over and she saw it was probably going to happen because it's part of like, he was getting himself in some risky situations. And he, right. he climbed up the slide and he toppled over and like crumbled down the slide and then off the slide. And right. she was telling me, she's like, he, he handled it. He got up and he kind of like looked around and then he started laughing. And she's like, wow. like, she's like, you, you guys have done such a good job. Like he's so, I don't know what word she is, but like adaptable or resilient or like um, in the face of, you know, like something crazy, like had such an interesting perspective. Uh-huh. And um, I was like, I'd love to take credit for that, but you know, like I have nothing to do with that. Right, right, right. Yeah, maybe, maybe in the sense you could take some credit in just allowing him to explore with his body different things. Maybe, and, yeah, and, and not not like judging everything, just letting him do his thing, and like uh, you know, not saying like, oh, that's good or that's bad, or yeah, if, if he like falls to the ground, like when he's learning to walk, like like say nothing and just let him deal, let him learn to deal with it himself, and I don't know. So we, we have talked about those things and, and wanted to do those kinds of things. Right. Getting the little failures in. I mean, we talk about like kids learning how to climb trees and like we, I kind of, I love it when kids fall on small trees, you know, when they're like just learning and they fall off the first couple branches. I mean, that's when you learn that like you can fall off a tree, you know, yeah. you don't get to the point where you all of a sudden start climbing a tree and you're like way up high before you fall. And then that's a much bigger situation to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like you, you have all these little things that happen like that don't um, they're, they're not risky enough that they're going to yeah possibly you, you'll die. But like they are risky in the sense that you might get hurt. But you, the learning that comes from that is just so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have one. We have a, a stretch of a creek alongside part of where our school place is part of our learning area 
is like just full of these big rocks you got to walk over. Okay. And it's like not a beautiful sandy beach. It's like there's the creek, but then there's like boulders and rocks and they're super tippy. And, okay. and, and, you know, when we first started, there was one kid in particular, this little girl who was just slamming, like constantly slamming. And really? she like, she was a powerhouse. So she'd like fall and, you know, be shooken up, but then like try it again. And then she'd be walking again and she'd fall again and stumble and like just all the time. <laughs> and, and you see her now and you would like, you'd just never know it. She's like just charging over these rocks. Like it's nothing. Like a ninja. Just like. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And she's only, she's like eight now. And then we have kids sometimes who start like, who start when they're like nine, who, who just join and they can't do it. You know, they're, they're slamming too. And they're just, they're not used to it. And just like, I mean, I love the fact that we're not just walking on flat ground. You know, it kind of speaks to the, the ability to deal with diverse situations in life. Yeah. And how do you know your body? Just like the proprioception of where your body is in space, what your balance is like, um, just on like a very practical physical level, I find it incredibly important to see kids grow physically and be able to like handle climbing up a slide. Like that's an, that's an important thing to be able to do because like, you know, it's connecting yourself with this challenge and with your body. And when you have that sense of like, I can do this and the skill and the empowerment of your body being able to do stuff that transfers over tremendously into cognitive stuff and academic stuff, just that physical ability, you know, it can be, it's just, it's a bummer too when you see people who just like don't have that ability because they haven't had the experience of walking on uneven surfaces or climbing over things or falling on things. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and that sounds like a great lead into what you guys are doing on a day to day. Like, uh, can you just talk kind of about the general pedagogy and, and uh, um, the, the physical and the academic and the, yeah. the nature and just how it's all interrelated? Yeah, I yeah, I'll try to. Well, so um, I know that's a that's a pretty encapsulating. Right. Yeah. Right. Let me go with one piece first, which is that you know, um, in a lot of traditional schools, at least in California and in some other places too, there's like this week long science nature camp that kids go to in like fifth or sixth grade, or at some point in their, in their, um, education life, they go off to do like their, their nature camp experience. Right. And sometimes it's like heavily environmental ed, which is just amazing. And I love those programs. And I actually thought for a long time about teaching at one and I volunteered at a few different ones and there's so many amazing ones. And I waffled for a lot as a teacher. Like, do I want to teach in a public school or do I want to teach at an environmental ed school? And both have amazing things that they do. Um, And what I felt like was really missing is you got these environmental education centers that the kids go to and they like have the most incredible experiences there. You know, they like, they connect with the animals and the, and the plants that are there and with each other. And they feel that deep connection with the earth. And then they go back to the rest of their life. And some of that comes with them and some of them, it sticks really hard and a whole bunch of them, it fizzles out. Yeah. And so for a while with, uh, when I was teaching in, in public schools, I was trying to bring as much of that in as I could, you know, you're in like a, a classroom but you can still bring your kids outside. You know, you can still go outside and do 
activities with whatever is surrounding you. Um, and, and still though, at the end of the day, like you're, you're at the school and you're in the classroom. And I, th I would love to see that be a place where there are developments in just the education system is just more outside classrooms and more curriculum that involves the outdoors. Um, I don't know if it would ever like satisfy my own desires for my own students. And so what we ended up being able to do was basically take those two worlds and, and blend them together. So there's not a separation between your environmental ed school and your traditional school that they're just happening simultaneously. Right. And then we have, there's like two other spheres that kind of wrap into that. One is like the service learning and community aspect, which I talked about a little bit. And then there's also just the physical movement and, and knowing your body and your strength, like the strong body, strong mind approach, which um, I, I started to develop um, an, a curriculum for it called Monkey Bar Math like four or five years ago, which was the whole idea was like, okay, you're at the school, you're, um, you've got your playground where the kids can go run and swing and jump and all that stuff. And then you've got and, and that's amazing. And then you've got your like math curriculum, which is happening, you know, inside in your classroom, sitting at your desk. And everything that you're learning about in a math textbook has some basis in reality. Yeah. Like the only reason it's there is because somebody realized, hey, we've got this problem that we need to figure out and we need some way to do it. And so let's create some sort of mathematics to go with it, whether it's like addition, multiplication or calculus. Like there's always some actual situation in the real world and that's where like math problems like word problems try to get at that yeah um, but it's still you know piecemeal compared to the actual experience and then and so the sort of experience that monkey bar math tried to create for the kids was having the actual context the actual numbers for the math come from some sort of physical experience so if it was like we had like a long division one where like every actual number that was, and every part of the process of long division, which is like this, you know, eternally frustrating thing for a fifth grade teacher or fourth grade, it depends on where you are, and the students is like when every part of it, whether it was like the the bring down or you know the multiply piece, like all that came from some motion or some series of motions on the playground. Then it was like, oh, well, that 200 was because of that was not necessarily I did 200 jumping jacks or whatever it is, but maybe I did like 10 and each one was worth 20 points. So then I have 200 there. And so every piece of it and then like the subtraction piece was because we were doing a particular um, thing. We were trying to keep track of like how many points we were getting as we were doing these things on the playground. And we had it for we were doing it for like addition we we're doing it for subtraction we had this beautiful one called um animal olympics where we were comparing like how far can a kangaroo jump compared to how far can i jump okay uh, and like you're learning cool stuff about kangaroos you're actually doing your jump and measuring it so like my jump oh is like 48 inches yeah. and a kangaroo's jump is like nine feet or whatever it is <laughs> and then you have that's like the perfect opportunity for a subtraction problem yeah to compare you know how much farther is that kangaroo jumping than me and those numbers have have a meaning like that's how far yeah. i was actually jumping you know yeah. and so anytime we can do that where we can like tie in that actual like deep kinesthetic understanding 
I think is just like, it's so much more powerful, you know, then they can, it's not just this number on a page. It's not just like a 200 sitting there, 200 what? And like, we could try like, oh, is it 200 cookies? Is it like yeah, yeah. 200 rocks or, or is it like, no, it's 200 inches. Cause that's like how far, well, I didn't jump 200 inches. That's, that's <laughs> what <it's about. laughs> 200 something. <laughs> And uh, I feel yeah, so, like that one it makes me think of like measurement. Measurement is like is a is a tricky one for a lot of kids who are learning how to use a ruler and and even just number sense of like what does two hundred mean? Two hundred is like a really big number, you know. And Rel sometimes you get a kid who's what's that? Well, I was gonna say relative though, and that's probably another component of it is like two hundred is a big number relative to five something. Yeah, exactly. All compared right. to I mean, and really small compared to like two million. Yeah, right. yeah. And so when you've got some way of actually quantifying it in a way that is like deeply centered on the experience of the kid, yeah. then they're, go they're just going to remember it better, you know, and it's going to be easier to compare that in the future to other things. Yeah, it yeah. it's like it makes me think like, like, I know how to do this division problem. And oh, yeah, I know how to do a division or I know how to do a division problem because it actually relates to something I was trying to figure out that, that I was doing like it, that. It, totally. There's a reason that I know division now. Right. And once you've learned, used it in an actual situation, it's so much more easy to transfer that to using it in a different situation. You know, once it actually has like a, a purpose yeah. and that's in some ways really the goal of what we're trying to do for any topic is provide some sort of purpose, some sort of meaning, whether it's like a purpose because it will help you later in your life or a purpose because it's going to help the climate or a purpose because it's going to help your neighbor. Like as long as there's some reason some bigger meaning behind what you're doing, there's so much more buy-in. It's not just like a purpose because I want to get an A. That is such an arbitrary purpose. I want to please my teacher. Like yeah. that is not, should not be the goal, you know? Yeah, or I want to please my parents or I want to get a, an A because I want to get, you know, a certain grade point average so I can go to a certain college or, you know, all, right. on and on. Right. It's a short-term motivator, no doubt about it, but it doesn't lead to much like long-term and, and meaningful learning. So it sounds like, like a big part of what you guys are doing is just like, can you create meaning? Yeah. Some way, long-term or short-term on a day-to-day -day basis so that the, the, that the individuals in, in your school can really connect with, with learning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of the first projects we did um, was about water. Okay. And it was just this deep exploration into water like how plants use water how water gets polluted and can be cleaned um what's what water's made out of i mean water itself has you could go into it forever that you know the hydrodynamics of how water moves through a particular setup and it was all basically contextualized in this bigger project of we have a creek here that is used by people is obviously a home to lots of plants and animals and it is also misused by a lot of people you know there's like quite a bit of pollution in the creek like our just like you know physically like we did a trash cleanup yesterday as part of the climate strike it was kind of funny to think about the climate strike as like we want to strike against you know our standard approach to how like the status quo the the, the norm of of education systems or just general like geopolitical and, and economic systems. Yeah. And when it came to like striking against an education system, it's like, well, it's kind of like what we do every day anyway. You right. know, it's like, 
okay, how can we, for ourselves, how can we apply that a little bit more? So we did like a community trash cleanup where we invited nice. anyone from our area to come participate. And this one particular area that gets used a lot, it's beautiful, but it has a lot of physical trash there. So we were cleaning that up. And there's that level of it. There's also like an incredible amount of mercury in our creek. Um, there's something like 80% of all the mercury that ends up in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, you know, a, 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 a spot where there are the Sacramento River goes into it. You know, like huge waterways, a huge watershed going into that. But like 80% of the mercury is coming from Cache Creek, which is our local creek here, which wow. is like scary, you know? Yeah. And it's coming from mercury mines that there's a lot of naturally occurring mercury upstream. And it was mined, and then there's all these tailings that are still leaching into the water. And, and we were lucky enough, actually, one day to have um, a scientist who's been studying it for years come out and, like, show the kids his water quality testing equipment and talk to the kids all about how, like, swimming and it's fine. Like, you don't have to worry about that because it's methylated mercury that bioaccumulates first, you know, into the smaller fish and the bigger fish and bigger fish, that whole story of tuna, right? And it's happening in our creek, too. And so... You're supposed to really minimize how much fish you eat, if at all, especially kids and, you know, um, women who are going to be given birth because that's where it affects them. But just the fact that it's there at all is is not completely human made, but it's human exacerbated. Yeah. And so we were framing this whole water unit basically on like we need to learn to we need to learn what the water is really, really well so that we can then talk to everybody else about the importance of maintaining and hopefully cleaning it up more than it is now. And like hopefully getting to some future level of, of cleanliness that is much more usable for people and better for the environment. And that being like one example of when that that meaningfulness drives the through line for the entire unit, you know, the, everything we want to learn. That's really cool. Like these these guys and girls are are in, are becoming invested in something that is going to become a world that they want to live in, and yeah. raise children in themselves, and and it and it just sounds like that connection. I mean, that's a that's a connecting piece that I I feel like a lot of people are missing out on. Yeah, I was watching um, you know Greta's talk to the UN from last year, where she's basically like, all of you adults, you're saying that. Like the reason you do everything is because you love your kids and you want to do stuff for your kids and that you let your, you're leaving all of these kids with like a terrible future with how we're treating the environment. And it's like, that's a, that's not what we should be obviously doing. Like we need to help the environment and we need to help the kids know and connect with the world so that they can help it too. You know, like the purpose of almost all of our, the greater purpose of almost all of our nature experiences that we do which are daily, but also like once a week, we go on some sort of wilderness adventure. And the greater purpose is so that they can build some sort of deep, heartfelt connection with the earth. So that no matter what profession they go in, whatever it is, there can be some, you know, background thinking about how they can live their life in a way that's, you know, hopefully a symbiotic relationship with the planet. I love that. So, Alex, if, if a parent is listening to this and well, f well, first off, if a parent's listening to this and they want our, our children to, to be with you guys at Cape Atelier and you'll have to go and maybe talk about what Atelier means and, and uh, where that came from. What an Atelier is? 
Yeah, yeah. But, but if, if someone wants that to happen, how could they do that? And then also, if, um, if a parent wants this for their son or daughter or their family, how can they do it uh, at home or somewhere else? Right. Um, so, so the Atelier word, um, it's a French word means workshop, essentially. And it's used, the, the, the meaning that we're using it from is based off of the Reggio Emilia approach, which is um, an Italian community, really, that has a very beautiful community-based um, approach to education. So they have like um, this very progressive way of teaching the kids in their community. And every classroom has an atelier. And the atelier is the place for creation and the place for imagination and the place for, you know, building things and creating things. It's like the studio, the workshop of that space. Okay. And um, we try to do that in, in like a very, in a, in, a, in a way, a broader sense. You know, it's the, our whole existence as the Cape Atelier is a place for imagination and creation. And we have, like, you know, we have, like, a maker space. And we have, obviously, all of our natural surroundings to explore and create. And so, we, in a way, we consider ourselves an atelier as, as a standalone. And then, so, it's the Cape Atelier because that's just where we are. So, bringing in our place as well. Um, what was, and, oh, so, for parents at home, right. So, I mean, it, we would love it for anyone who lives around us to participate would be fantastic. We want to share what we're doing as much as we can with people who want to enjoy it. A lot of people don't live right around us. You know, we're trying to um, expand and build up some camps that people from a little further away would have an opportunity to enjoy what we're doing, but not just come for, you know, like the everyday sort of thing, like a lot of our students do. Um, and we're going to hopefully have some of those ready for next summer. Like, we also want to do some family camps where we have like a, a family come together so we can provide some of that training for the parents on how they can do some of this stuff at home. Right. Because, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that like the, it need, like the home bit and how parents can access it at home is like the number one question. You know, how can, we, how can everybody, anybody provide this for their kid? You know, provide some way to have a meaningful nature-based, movement-based, dynamic education thing for their kid. Like who doesn't really want that, you know? But right. It's, it's definitely hard to think about how you would do that. Um, so a few of the things that we're going to do, like at our family camp, which any family could really do to a degree, is, um, is start with a sit spot. So a sit spot, in a really simple sense, is a place that you go to in nature to experience by yourself and build up some relationship with that space. And on a very practical level, what it looks like is you go to that space regularly, like maybe every day, maybe once a week, and you spend time there. Maybe it's like five minutes, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's longer or shorter. And you start to know the plants that are there. You start to know the animals that are there. You start to know yourself really well because you have a lot of like meditative time there. But almost most importantly, you start to see the changes that happen, you know, seasonally, day to day you start to notice how things in nature are always changing. And that piece is totally missed when you go to a place for like one day. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't get to see how that flower is developing and how long it takes and how it, right before it is about to go and bloom open, something comes and eats it or whatever. Like all those interconnected dynamics 
can only come when you experience a place for a really long time. And what happens is the questions that come out of that are just unbelievable. Like sometimes we spend 15 minutes at a sit spot with the kids, each of them at their own space. And we spend an hour just talking about what they saw and what questions they have and what could be going on. I love it. And as the teacher, I'm like letting them talk, not always providing a lot of answers. You know, like there's a, there's a type of teaching called coyote mentoring where you're basically having a student or a child or, in, or an adult experiencing something and asking questions. And what you're trying to do is find the fringe, the area right on the outside, you know, like their learning spot, their stretch zone and asking questions to just build them out a little bit, yeah. you know, and it comes from because like that's where coyotes live. You know, when you've got a, a community, coyotes are always kind of on that fringe of like every city basically now, okay. you know, they're always existing on that edge. And so we can exist there too as teachers and help our kids move out a little bit by listening really close to their questions. And that's it. something that uh, that any parent can do too. Yeah. You know, you listen to hear the the hidden layers of like where their thinking is and where their questions are and then you can start to think like okay, what's the next step out from that and how can I help them build an experience that'll grow that. And what we're going to try to do at the family camp is have parents become really attuned to that and learn how to take that and then like say it's about um butterflies you know say the kid is just like fascinated by butterflies and that happened to us last spring as they started to hatch the kids were just like oh, butterflies everywhere you know they're, and they're like there's caterpillars here and they just start getting all these questions and so we we built up this unit that basically involved like a, of course really close look on butterfly anatomy and all the different visual appearances but then we, we, of course, did timeline stuff of like their life cycle. And then we started to look, you know, like internationally, where do different butterflies live in the world? And how can we get it like a global perspective on different species and where they exist and how they live? And then as just like a math extension, because I'm always thinking too, like, how can we tie in as much as we can? Like, how can we take this curiosity and tie in language arts and tie in history and tie in math, whatever we can do? Yeah. And yeah. a lot of the kids were ready for, um, kind of building something up to scale, like the multiplication, the, the, um, or even just if it's the kid at the additive level of like how to think of something as a comparison and how to expand that thing. So we were taking, you know, um, the, one of our butterflies around here is the tiger swallowtail. And we made a very careful drawing of a, like a to scale drawing and then blew it up. And they had to go through this math process of like, how do we put it down onto a big sheet of plywood and get all the lines gridded out correctly that would then correspond to the lines that we had drawn on the small one. And then we built this like massive tiger swallowtail that was completely to scale, even with all of the ornamentation of their coloring. And now it's like hanging up in one of our trees, you know, and it's like, Wow. You know, and that just came from this curiosity of butterflies. And there's like, I almost, it's all, it's hard, the hardest part for me is there's more questions than we can handle. You know, yeah. there's like, <laughs> how do we do the ones that are specific to that child or like, oh, there's like everybody's interested in that one, which is the beauty we get with having more students. Sure. But even, you know, you can do it with an individual kid too for a, a parent at home. But what a uh, difference between like, a, someone asks a question and you give them an answer and the process stops. 
versus you answer yeah. a question with a question and you come up with better and better questions and then it just keeps going. Yeah. Difference because I feel like so often it's, it's like a question is met with an answer. Yeah. We, right now um, at our Creek that the kids are pretty interested in fish. And so we did like a fish dissection the other day. And then we started, we wanted to learn, they were curious about like, you know, where do the fish live in the Creek? Are they in like just the deeper spots? Are they in the rapids? Are they in the swifter moving current or the slower moving current and which sizes are where? And so to kind of get towards an answer to that question, we started building weirs, like the fish traps that, you know, made out of sticks or rocks or whatever that traditional communities have used forever. And we, we did, you know, somewhat of an exploration, too, into how our native, um, the Yochidihi Winton Nation that has traditionally, historically lived in our valley, the, site, the sorts of fish weirs that they built, and also ones like on the Sacramento River by the Patwin and different communities. And we started trying to build our own. So the kids were building their own fish weirs along the creek. And, and sure enough, no surprise, they didn't catch any fish. Totally empty, you know? And... You know, their question is like, why, why didn't we catch any fish? Why aren't they there? And I've got my ideas, but sure. I'm going to answer it with, you know, and this is what we thought. We're like, well, yeah, why aren't they there? Like, I wonder why they're not here. Maybe they are in a different part of the creek, or is it because of how deep it is in your weir, the size of your weir? Like, what could be, and I kind of directed back at them, like, what could be the situation of why you didn't catch any fish? I love and it. so through this, like, process of, all of these possible reasons why they failed, because failure is essential, right? We were talking about it a little bit earlier, yeah. uh, like why have the importance of that, of those mistakes. Yeah. And now we've got like, okay, so next time, and we're going to do it next week, we're going to go back and they've got these different ideas of how, the, where they can build them and the size of them. And it's like, I mean, they love it. Like you get to actually move the rocks and build the sticks. And like, it's so much fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And learning so much about where, these fish are actually living because I know they're there. Like we see them every now and then. We sure. jump out and stuff. Yeah. What kind of bait do they like? What do they like to eat? Can we bait them with different things? Yeah. You know, like it's endless. You know. What a what an investigative process. And 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 like you said, like you have an idea of what might be the answer. But even that, even your answer is is an old answer. It's based on some past experience that you've had. None of you, none of us, really know exactly what you're going to come up with right now when you learn something new about it. And I just, I just love that. I think that's great. Yeah, I think there's like a, a common misconception between any adult that to be the teacher of something, we have to know it like super duper well. And there is no doubt that for some things you do. Like there are certain things where, like if I'm going to try to teach long division and I don't know the steps very well, it's not going to go very well, you know. But for a whole lot of things, we can explore it together with the kids and we can we can grow together and the fact that i don't know it like a hundred percent or that someone else that you know that doesn't have to limit us from learning it together or how far they can go you know sometimes my questions um spark us off too because i'm like you know i I've, i have a zillion questions all the time when we're out there uh, yeah me me too i, I like and, and I'm, I'm gonna plug the computer in because it says it's running low so yeah let me just okay. plug it in so so we don't lose lose this convo um yeah. i i often say well, what makes you think i know like i have i don't know like i, I have no idea um, yeah and I, I love answering questions with questions um in a way that i think it's gonna challenge not just them but me too to think 
deeper about what's going on here. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just think, I think I'm getting maybe, I don't want to say better, but just more and more thoughtful about doing that, like answering a question with a question, not just for them, but for me too, because like, like, you know, I might think I know, but that's limiting me too right. uh, from finding out. Right. And then the answer they get is a spoken answer or drawn answer or whatever from somebody that's this big of an answer that's done, or they can like actually experience it and build the understanding for themselves. You know, that's like the constructivist style where they're constructing their understanding of something through an experience that they yeah, participate. Yeah. It's like in the idea of like the, a subjective contextual truth, um, meaning so much more right. than, than some like, objective truth which is you know a truth to someone yeah not necessarily us or not necessarily um billy or juniper or whoever yeah agreed um alex uh why do you think this like what you're doing at, at kpe atelier uh not just for your own family but for all the kids involved and all the people who are finding out about what you guys are doing because i think you're i think it's getting out there more and more what, what you guys are doing. Uh, why do you think it's just uh, like a healthier, better way to, to live uh, mm. uh, in, a, in, a, in a greater sense? Well, I think that um, in some ways, the movement piece is, is a really big component there. The fact that we're not sitting at desks all day is just physically healthier from the get-go, you know? And there's like, there's so many issues that come about in a traditional classroom of the fact that you've got kids stuck at a desk all day. Like there's so much, um, so much energy that kids have that gets bottled up. You know, we had a, we've had kids who are coming from other schools with, and they're like on the verge of getting like an ADHD diagnosis and you can't tell, you know, they're just like, where we, when they can move, when they can get that energy out, they can learn totally fine, you know, like, it's, it's not true for everybody, obviously, like, there's different situations for every kid. But when you have that ability to actually, like, get up and walk around and get snack when you want to, instead of just at snack time, <laughs> whatever it is, right, right. just that piece alone, I feel like, leads to a a greater sense of health. And when you've got this healthier person who's not battling with some of those like very physical sorts of needs of needing to move or needing to eat or whatever, or whatever it is, like they're going to be more open cognitively. Yeah. As soon as we can be comfortable in our bodies and have our bodies be doing whatever they need to do, our minds can open up, you know, like there's so many ways where, you need to be doing something physically, but like your back hurts, you know, or like you've got this nervous twitch in your leg and you're whatever it is. And it like gets in the way. Like everyone experiences that all the time. You got to be doing something and you're like, oh, but I really need to do this or whatever. And that so we try to make sure that the kids can do that. I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, I think and then I think when when humans have evolved for, you know, thousands, millions of years in a in nature and we are just hardwired to understand and feel comfortable and experience and build meaning from 
trees and bird calls and what the rocks are and the sticks are when we take that out of the entire experience even if we're not totally aware of the effect that that's happening on ourselves or our neighbor like it's there you know like there's something missing in that existence that is just part of being human part of being any organism on the planet we have all evolved in this beautiful natural world that it doesn't have straight lines and it doesn't have you know um homogenous chromatography whenever i'm trying to say like the color palette and the textures and everything like it's so diluted in a lot of what our experience is yeah that when it's not that you know like i i did my uh, master's thesis on outside classrooms and i was working as a at a school and trying to take kids out into into just outside and just teaching general academics outside and i was you know as part of the master's thesis reading about different situations where that happens and everything and the takeaway i got from it is that you know some kids can learn better and some kids can't because some kids are distracted by what's going on inside and some kids are distracted by what's going on outside and in some ways that's just you know what i think what they're used to you know and so when we have kids who are outside all the time the fact that there are all of these like the wind and the birds flying overhead and all that is not a distraction for them at right. all right like that is just beautiful background noise you know we like there are people there are families who come grandparents come pick up their kids and they're just they get there and they're just like oh this is so lovely there's like the sound of the creek and the the wind and the kids are all focused and they're just like so in enraptured with what's going on and it's not like this oh like you know when i was doing it as the master's thesis it was like any bird or whatever that goes by it's like this constant distraction and to me that after this amount of time afterwards it's like we just need more of that you know yeah. the more you're used yeah. to it the more it becomes an enhancement rather than a distraction well that's it's funny when you were saying that what, what i was thinking was those those kids who were like distracted by the the bird or the wind or the tree like they that was that's what they should be learning about then yeah like that that's and you said it like that's what they need more of that's all that's saying it's not saying they're distracted or distractible right like it's saying like that's what they should be focused on they should be focused on that yeah i mean there's like anytime the local red-shouldered hawks fly by and start calling we're all like oh where's it going you know oh it's going from that oh there's two of them and they're flying right over there and then they're gone and it's like okay, cool, let's get back to what we were doing. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. You know, like you, we'd learn from that. And then it's not like all of a sudden we're unable to refocus. Yeah, I love that. Right, right, that's, right. That's, like, that's a thing of humans. <laughs> well, this, yeah, we can, this, this movability or this uh, like, like navigability and transitionability, uh, uh, but just being, being able to be adaptable to what's happening in our environment because nothing's static. I mean, no. that's great. Yeah, I mean, when you think about just like going on a walk out in the woods somewhere, you're constantly panning from this. Well, um, I, ideally, if it's practice, you know, you're constantly panning from this like kind of wide angle vision, which is like a general perception of something, of what's all around you. And then you like you see a movement of a leaf or you see a movement of a squirrel and you focus in on it for a moment. And then that attention is not needed anymore. So then you go back to this wider vision. And it's this constant like back and forth between a greater perception that's not hyper-focused on one particular thing 
to then that hyper focus and like our eyes are perfect for that that we can go back and forth you know and that's how a lot of you know animals that are predator animals basically can do that prey animals can do it somewhat too they're living more with their eyes on the side in this bigger realm of wide angle but you know as soon as a deer hears a sound they're like like hype like totally in you know and then they can move accordingly and like we can do that outside we do it naturally and we can absolutely do it in any learning situation where you're like you're here focused on this thing and then it can be it can go somewhere else and then come back and that interplay is vital because as we know there are distractions all the time in life yeah you know like it's it's completely um impossible to get rid of all of them and live in this like you know completely sheltered little filtered world it's not going to happen it's just not real yeah and and just the idea that we can be open to like insights coming from any place at any time, I think makes us just, you know, kind of more valuable participants as well. Yeah. They're all teachers, right? Everything, everything's there to teach us something. Yeah. Yeah. What's that expression? Like, uh, the teacher is always, always ready to give you, give you what he or she wants. It's up to you to open the door. Right. Right. And that's true for like the, the, parent the adult teacher or whether it's the tree or the red-shouldered hawk totally i love that alex um would you mind uh speaking to some of the works i i I just i think if we have if we want to spend a little bit more time i think it'd be great if if you have it um but i'd love to talk about some of the works that have inspired you uh through the years you you mentioned a few books that have been inspirational like the coyote manual i think you you mentioned and then yeah. um, like some other things like John, like, uh, oh, the Coyote's Guide. Yeah. Right. Um, John uh, Taylor uh, Gatto, I think is, is how you pronounce his name, was another guy that came to mind when we were talking earlier. Right. Um, and then the other one that piqued my interest was the Smart Moves. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but I was, I was curious about those. If you, if, if you wouldn't mind speaking to, to some, of the, some of those works, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I grabbed a few. I just showed one. I grabbed a few to just kind of, put up and I wanted to read a couple little parts of some of them too. So on Taylor Gatto one was one that I read. Um, I started reading like eight or nine years ago that was right in that transition period that I was talking about earlier when my son was born and I was, we were starting to rethink what we wanted for our, our family's education and just for the students that I was working with. And he's got um, a, like the very first chapter in here is all about this different way of seeing what a school week could look like. Um, and he's got this one particular like sentence that just always kind of hits me where it's, he says, students can learn to think, speak, calculate, and write more easily through close contact with reality than through confinement and abstract texts. And that, as I'm sure, is not a big stretch to see how that has influenced what we try to do, you know, try to contextualize everything in a real situation. And then he goes on to talk about like a week at school being like two days in the classroom and then one day being an independent study project, one day being a community service project, one day being some sort of field curriculum, and then all kinds of family aspects of like building in, like family is so huge for him and the home and like having that be a place where you're learning as well. And like his main goal, which I love, is just trying to, have students build their own understanding of the world and their own empowerment to go seek more of that understanding. 
you know, that it's not just coming from your teacher, that you are the source of what you want to learn about and that you have the ability to go find the answers to what you want to learn about. And I, I love that. He's got a chapter in here that's like written by one of the students that's just so incredible where he's like the kid writes a letter of like, this is what it was like in Mr. Gatto's class, you know. Wow. Like, oh my gosh, I want every kid to be like that. Um, that's awesome. Well, just, just, just real quick on that, like the idea that, that, that our learning stops when we're outside of a classroom, like, like we go to school to school to learn right? and, and the, the learning process is over like, out of school. Like that's just so, it's just asinine to me. It's pretty that's weird. Just, it's pretty weird. Or that like the learning that does happen out of the classroom is still something prescribed by the teacher as homework. Yeah. You know? Where it's like, I've, yeah, I've, I've got you in my classroom and I've got you at home. I still got to learn what I want you to learn. <laughs> There's like all this other time that now you don't get to spend learning other stuff. Um, and then yeah, I mentioned the Coyote's Guide a little bit. And, and so this, the lineage of the Coyote's Guide comes from Tom Brown Jr., who, um, who his teacher was a, a, an Apache scout named Grandfather or Stalking Wolf. He called him grandfather. And Tom Brown Jr. is, he's like the tracker. He's like the guy who has the tracker school. He's got the book called The Tracker and like a zillion field guides, which I have all of them. And he is all about like nature awareness and survival and building that deep spiritual connection with the environment. And his first student was this guy, John Young, who then was like one of the key authors of Coyote's Guide. And so that lineage is where the coyote mentoring comes from, that idea of trying to exist as a teacher more as a guide and, and bring our students out to that next level of understanding through like very, very acute awareness of where their edges are. Um, and then all of these two, the, all those Tom Brown Jr. books and the coyote's guide are just loaded with activities, like so many games and so many activities that you can do with kids in a classroom or just like as a parent, I would recommend this book to anybody. Awesome. Uh, and it's all about number one, like building awareness, like by, far and away, that's, that's their number one thing that they try to have everyone build more of because that awareness of, of course, what's going on around you, like in nature, but also, I mean, when I think of awareness, I bring it also to like when you're writing an essay, like when you have awareness of who your audience is, of who's going to be reading what you're writing, and when you have a heightened awareness of the editing and the grammatical structures you're using and like all of that stuff, that all comes down to how aware you are. And when you're doing long division, which we've talked about a few times, or trig or calculus or whatever it is, all of those steps, when you can be more aware of the greater purpose of what you're trying to do and all the little pieces, it's so much easier to to like do everything correctly, you know? There's there's a some uh, a guy that I've read a lot of his work, Moshe Feldenkrais. Some people will know him, some people won't. But anyway, he's got a famous like way of looking at it like that the more you're aware of how you do what you do in every sense, the more you can do what you want. And without that awareness, you lose freedom of freedom of being, freedom of choice. Like like that awareness is such an essential component. Yeah, I think one of the first times I ever did like a movement practice with you, you did some Feldenkrais stuff with the micro movements, basically, you know, and like, yeah. I had just been reading about it too. And I was like, I love this guy. It's great. <laughs> you, that's who I was talking about. Feldenkrais yeah. too, but I hadn't, I hadn't been, I had tried it a little bit myself, but I'd never been in a group situation where someone was having us do it. 
And I, I just love, I mean, it's, yeah, it's incredible. Like just from the tiniest little things and, and like with Feldenkrais and with everything, it's all pointing to how connected it all is, right? How like the littlest movement of your finger is actually coming from somewhere in your back as well. You know, like it's all this whole body experience. Um, okay, so smart moves, perfect segue, right? Nice, awesome. Smart moves is Carla Hannaford, this one right there. And um, why learning is not all in your head. And this became like a really key one for me when I was doing a lot of the monkey bar math stuff because she is all about how um, it's how your physical body and having the awareness of your body and the strength and the skills and just using your body leads directly into the strength of your mind and how those how connected those are. Like I also pulled a little part from this. This is basically what I consider the thesis of the book, which is my biggest takeaway. I'm gonna, can I read it? I, read I would it. love you to read it, yeah. The notion that intellectual activity can somehow exist apart from our bodies is deeply rooted in our culture. It's related to the attitude that the things we do with our bodies and the bodily functions, emotions, and sensations that sustain life are lower, less distinctly human. This idea is also the basis of a lot of educational theory and practice that make learning harder and less successful than it could be. Just that idea that like our bodies are not as important as our minds. And that has led into why we are forced to just sit at a desk and learn in a classroom like that all day, because we are not taking into account like the needs of the body as importantly as the needs of the mind. Like it's all about the brain. But it shouldn't be like the, the body is such a key part of that. Like, yeah, you know, they're completely obviously interconnected. Right, right. You, know? you learn from your body constantly. And then so to think that you could like restrict the body and have your brain just work beautifully and, and marvelously <laughs> all by itself is like, how's that going to happen? You know, like, what is that? Well, I think Feldenkrais has another good quote or, or something from one of his writings where he said, basically, like, without a body, without movement, you could not think. Like, like there would be no thinking right. without a body. Like they are literally in, um, one in the same function, interrelated function. Like, you, like you said. Right. But you're right. It's been so like our our culture certainly done a good job of 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 creating a separation. Yeah, and a hierarchy of like which one's more important. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. What, what about you guys? When are you guys gonna write a book? When are we going to write one? <laughs> um, yeah, May, um, Megan, my wife, wants to. She's like compiling stories and, and articles and things. Um, I don't know. I mean, if we were to write one, what I would like to do is some sort of like blueprint for a family or an educator to start to build up a education system for their family or their classroom, whatever it is that um you know meets the needs of their kids and takes into account the movement and the and nature and all that because ours is influenced by where we live and who our population is and so it's going to look differently anywhere but it can be just as beautiful or more so in another place with other people you know i think that's amazing the way you talked about that like not like a a prescription that says do it like this do it like this do it like this but but just a, a general um, guideline and then the the onus is on the educator or whoever's laying it out to, 
to really be receptive to what their environment looks like. Yeah, I mean, in the same way I can't provide all the answers for my kids or don't want to, it wouldn't be as meaningful. Same thing, right? Like, yeah. Those books shouldn't either. I love that. There's uh, actually, um, there's a book written by an old um, mentor of mine, Tom Little, who was the head of school for Park Day School in Oakland for years. He, 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 he helped found it and taught there for 30, some, not he didn't teach there, but he was there for 30 years altogether. And he has this book called Loving Learning. And I don't have the title, the cover jacket for it. And what he basically did is he went, he was like, he, another book that was his biggest influence was this one, The Transformation of the School by Lawrence Kremen which is all about progressive education in, in the United States and how and the history of it. And it was written a while ago. And the, the, uh, the type of progressive education that was happening in like the early 1900s in the United States was just mind-blowingly open and creative. And then it totally tanked. And this book is all about that process. And then Tom's book was basically trying to refine all of the situations that are currently happening of how progressive education is growing again. And so it's this beautiful look at all of these different schools across the country. He went on this amazing tour across the US of all of these different schools that are using progressive practices and just basically saying like, here's how people are doing it. And yeah. it's like, here's how you have to do it. It's just here are all these examples of how it can be done so that we can start to just be more creative with whatever we've got, you know? And I, I love it. It's amazing. And, and like uh, creating some inspiration or, and, and or hope, like it's happening. Like, like we, yeah. we think it's not happening, but there are nuggets all over the yeah. country where, where people are realizing and wanting something different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm still, I'm looking for more um, one room schoolhouse sort of, or at least mixed age progressive places. So anyone... <laughs> who's listening who wants to get in touch with me about that always looking like we had a teacher come from um a few hours away last spring who's who's doing something similar and it was just it's so beautiful you know to talk to somebody else who's in the same place of trying to um take some of the lessons from how people have done it in the past and then make it for what our kids are experiencing in the world right now and there, I, th I think if there are people out there doing it. I know there are. You know, I can feel it. And well, I think this, the more this is this is our tribe, right? Like th these yeah. are the people that we want to be having the conversations with, and and sharing the stories with, and and uh, and, and and driving this out with. Yeah, exactly. Where where can a, a viewer or a listener uh, uh, contact you? Learn more about you guys. Um, I, I know you guys have an Instagram. Uh, account uh, you have a website so can you talk about uh, how someone yeah. can reach out yeah so the the website is kpatelier.com which is k-p-a-c-a-p-a-y and then atelier is a-t-e-l-i-e-r and on there it has um, like our Instagram feed at the bottom and then it also has just contact stuff in the back so it has like our phone number and email address and everything and um, we have people come visit pretty regularly so anyone can come and just kind of check out what we're doing either like a prospective family or just someone in the education world who's curious you know we have a, a lot of visitors coming through which is wonderful um and then just phone conversations too of course people who live further away you know i'm always game to talk to people get new ideas and everything 
I love it. Uh, can, so uh, a prospective student, they can do every day of the week. They can do one day. Like, what's 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 that look like for? Yeah. So we yeah we have a five day a week program where um, we run Monday through Thursday with like our on site program, and then on Fridays, every Friday we do uh, we call them wild days, which stands for wilderness immersion learning days, and so we go off um, on some sort of nature experience where we're folding in both just you know nature awareness and connectivity with a lot of academic skills too and it's wonderful and so families yeah it's basically like we want to meet the needs of the families we serve and so some want their kids to come one day a week some three days a week some five days a week and um, we want to do what we can to help support them in that because and then also just with like any sort of homeschooling support you know if families want feedback on curriculum and lesson ideas and they can do it. and anyone of course for the family camp that we're going to be doing is a great way to have everyone experience it you know our goal is to like help parents learn more through that family camp about how to teach their kids but also just to give parents and families a chance to connect with nature with their family you know like a lot of times just that dedicated time where like we have, I have to do it still with my family where, you know, at least a few times a week, if not every day, we need to have some just quality family time somewhere out in nature, like out in the forest or down at the creek or something, because it's very grounding just for us and our relationships. That's awesome. Alex, last thing, where, where do you see Cape Atelier in 30 years? And where do you see, well, I mean, where, where do you see yourself in 30 years? What's the vision here? 30 years. That makes me think of Tom, <laughs> Tom right there. Um, there are, a lot, there are a, lot of a lot of different options there. You know, one of them is that we're still here in the Cape Bay Valley, and we've just built up this program in some growth, some diverse sure. new way. Um, one of the things we're playing with is, like, just building out our space to be more of a of a community space and uh, kind of an event space so we can have more things for more people from further away to come experience what we're doing. Yeah. Um, in 30 years, my kids will be out of the school. So maybe someone else will be running it here and we'll be off doing something somewhere in some other part of the world. I don't really know. Like I have a hard time seeing myself leaving in some ways because where we live is my favorite place on earth. But I also love seeing other places the earth their world is huge so i want to see them all that's awesome all right well uh thank you thank you for doing this I, like this is uh i mean this has been something i think we've both been wanting to do for a little while now and uh i mean it's just been every everything i thought it would be and more so this has been been awesome thank you david i love talking with you you're a wonderful person with a lot of good ideas and questions i appreciate talking with you yeah well well thank you yeah the the, the pleasure has been all mine appreciate it okay all right well uh have a good rest of your saturday enjoy the weekend give give my love to the family and uh and we'll we'll do maybe we'll do this again soon yeah keep doing what you're doing yeah you yeah obviously you too and we'll get up there we want to come uh we drove up one day and and uh kind of uh covertly um you know check things out and uh you know we do that a lot we go on adventures as a family (laughs) So we, we've been up there. We, we think it's just so beautiful. Um, but maybe we'll get up there and do lunch with you guys or something sometime soon. Yeah, anytime, anytime.
Come awesome. for a day at school so you can be there for that too. Yeah, I think that might be that might be a a, a, a must coming yeah. up. Okay. Well, best wishes to you and your family, bud. Awesome. Same. Take care. Bye. Okay.